Well, it's great to be back, and thank you to Matthew and to Francois. Didn't they do a great job the last four weeks? Wow, thank you, and thank you. They sit on opposite sides of the church. I don't know why, but that's why I look that way and that way. So they kind of bookend. So anytime I look this way, I got to, oh, no, there's Francois. (gasps) There's Matthew, these guys. So it's good. But we are glad you're here. If you're visiting us, we welcome you. If you'd like to know anything about the church, just go to the Welcome Center down in the lobby. Afterwards, we have fellowship time. You can learn about anything we're doing. If you would like prayer afterwards, come forward. We're going to do a great ending, a doxology at the end of the service. So stay after the sermon's done. We sing. And then afterwards, if you want prayer, there'll be a team down here to pray with you. We would love. Some people, it's interesting, the people that come down for prayer are mostly new people. But those of you who are regulars, if you want to come down just to have a, a time of prayer, just come on down. Don't think, oh, I'm, I've been here for years and I know Jesus. Hey, if you want to have prayer, just come on down. Nobody's judging you. Nobody's going, oh, wow, they came down three weeks ago. Now they're coming back again. Something must be wrong. I got to tell you, I come down here sometimes and pray. I'm here at 7.30 in the morning praying down here, so you're not even here when I'm, there's just a couple of us in here praying for over you, and we're praying. But if you need to come down, it's not that down here is anything special, just a little quieter. There's people here that can pray with you. If you go down to the lobby or out into the lobby, it gets loud, and it's fun and all the other things. But come on down as well. Elizabeth and I had a great time away. We are glad to be back. This is our home. We love Boca Raton, and we love Boca Raton Community Church, so it's good to be back. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working in Ephesians, and thank you again to Matthew and to Francois for staying in the passage uh, as we're gone, and we've entitled this series, Known. And I haven't said much about it, and I don't know if they said much either about it. I don't think so. But the book of Ephesians is to help us know who God is without the end, and then to be known, to know and to be known. So it's kind of a play on words uh, on it. So as you think about Ephesians, it's just the word known, and it it could either be to know more or to be known. And today, we're going to actually look at both of it. There's six chapters in Ephesians, chapters one, two, and three are pretty theological and a lot of content. Chapters four and following have a lot of ethics, how to live, how to understand, how to play out your faith, but he sprinkles it with theology as well. So kind of theology, the last three chapters we've been dealing with, and then this brings in the practical side, and also Paul doesn't forget the other. So it's not like we're talking theology today and we're talking practice tomorrow. It all intertwines. It's not one or the other. And a lot of times in churches, there's people who say, just give me the Bible, just give me the theology. And there's others who say, just give me something to do. What am I supposed to do? And so we got the thinkers and the doers, but it really comes together and you got to do both. You got to think through and have a Christian understanding of our faith, but you also got to do something about it. And today brings both of those together. Let's turn to chapter four, and I'm just going to begin with it, and we're going to walk through it a little. We'll just see how far we get. We may get all the way to chapter verse 10. We may quit at verse eight. We'll figure it out, but we'll pick it up next week wherever we finish it. 
It says, I therefore, the I is Paul, the apostle, a prisoner for the Lord. Remember, he's in prison in Rome. They believe that he had been dropped down into a prison called the Mamertine prison, and that prison was basically the sewers. We need to understand, this man lived in the sewers that had grates on either end, and the sewer affluent would come at his feet all day long. This is not, um, you know, sitting somewhere in the United States in a minimum security prison. This is heinous, terrible situation. He goes, I, therefore, as a prisoner, I just want you to know, I'm going through a lot before I talk to you. That's what he's saying here. And we sometimes just skip right to what can I learn? Sometimes you got to see what the writer is coming from. That's important. And he says these words, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. We'll come back to that. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That sounds like a, a play on words. I wanna talk about walk for a minute. You all who know me know I love to walk. We just love to walk. I love to ride bikes. I love to be in cars. I love to be on planes. I love to be on trains, but I really love to walk. There's something you see when you walk that you don't see when you're going 30, 40, or 100 miles an hour. You, just, you see other things, but you just don't see what you see when you walk. And Paul's saying the Christian life is a walk. Uh, there was a non-Christian about 150 years ago who said, said it this way when he was talking about Christians. He said it was a long obedience in the same direction. I thought that is a cool way for a non-Christian to describe Christians, that we have a long obedience in the same direction. We're heading towards Christ, and we have that obedience, and we're walking. Sometimes you can run, sometimes you can move fast, sometimes you're standing still, but it is a walk. Um, on our trip, I'll just tell you a couple things about our trip. We walked on our trip a lot, and for one week, we walked through the mountains every day. So we would pick, uh, and we're not big hikers, so we weren't doing 20 miles a day, more like eight to 10 miles a day, up and down. We did, and we don't do this, we're too old for that. We kind of do the rolling, kind of through the valleys so we can see everything. And what was amazing was, so we're in the mountains and we picked this trail and we're by ourselves, totally we didn't see anybody for a couple of hours and we're walking on this trail. And all of a sudden we come to a cave and I could see the light at the other end. We had to go through the cave to get to the other side. It wasn't that big. You had to get down and kind of go down. And then when you got in, it was, it was beautiful, maybe 30 feet long. And then there was the path on the other side. And then as we were walking into it, I realized there was something in there besides rocks. And I didn't know because, you know, you have, it's dark, you have light in your eyes coming down. And so we walk into this place and there are mountain sheep in it. Now, I've seen mountain sheep going 70 miles an hour in the Rockies, and you go, there's one. I have never been this close to mountain sheep. There was a family of them in there. It was, it was the most incredible thing, except I realized I've got to pass them, and they have horns, and they have hoofs, and they can kick, and all these bad things. So I'm thinking, how we can't go backwards. I mean, we would have never gotten home. We had to go forwards. But we walked through there 
with these mountain sheep with their horns. These were black-nosed sheep. So their horns, they weren't the kind that go like this. They were the kind that went out. They were so incredible. And they didn't bother us. We didn't bother We kind of scooted around them, got out. And then on the other side, there was another family of these sheep. We would have never saw them had we been down in the valley riding on the car or in the train. You see, there's things you see when you walk. And God has called us to walk through this life. But so many times we either have blinders on or we're missing it. Now, what does he say to walk? So he tells us how to walk. He says, walk in a manner of your calling in what I have called you. Kind of a play on words. What is this calling that you have been called? You remember back at the beginning of this subject, we talked about um, election and free will. We talked about calling. We talked about the tension. Well, it was interesting, later in our trip, we were having dinner with somebody, and I was talking about this tension as I was thinking of this, and he said, think of it this way, and somebody had shared with him, think of a pulley up in the top of this, and you throw a, a rope around, and you have the rope here, and you have the rope here, right? If you pull this rope, this rope just dangles up, and if you pull this rope, this rope dangles. You have to have tension on both ropes to make the pulley work, whether it's weights or product you're trying to lift, a cargo you're trying to lift up. You've got to have weight on both sides. In the Christian realm, we have the whole understand that God has called us. He has elected us. But he also has told us that we have to have faith. We have to believe. We have to walk in this. There's a portion that is God, and there's a portion that is us. And theologians and Christians have argued what the portion is. Is it 99-1? Is it 50-50? Is it 75-25? I'm not here to argue it. What I'm here to say is there's a tension that both exists. Even in this passage where he says, walk, that's me. I am to walk. You are to walk in our calling. Now, what is calling? I've talked about it so many times, but it's pretty simple. I pull out the phone and I call you. I am the caller and you are the called. It's pretty simple. God has called us and we are the called ones. And he's saying walk in an understanding in a manner that lets you know that this calling is from God. Bill's not calling you. Elizabeth's not calling you. Clay's not calling. We might call you to help volunteer. We might call you to do something like that. But God is calling you to live a sanctified, holy life and to walk in that manner, in the manner that we have been called. And then he tells us six ways we are to walk. It's amazing how thick this is. And that's only, we're still in verse two. He says, verse one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse two, this is how we are to walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, sixth, in the bond of peace. That's the sermon. If you can do those six things, you're walking in the spirit. So I'll just let it go, but I think I'll talk to it a little more. I'm just being silly here. Humility. Humility. What is humility? 
We've talked about this a lot because humility is misunderstood. We think humility is thinking lowly of yourself. That's humility. That is not humility. That's false humility. Humility, thinking higher than yourself is pride, right? So that's wrong. Thinking lower than you should think of yourself is false humility. So what is humility? Humility is thinking exactly what God has done for you. Let me give you an example. I have a friend up in West Palm who uh, is not wealthy, but he loves to give. He's a giver. He just gives. He gives money. He gives things. He finds out what you need. He's a giver. He goes, you know, I can't tell anybody I'm a giver because people don't get it. I could tell them if I volunteered at Boca Helping Hands, I can tell them that I volunteer with the youth. I can tell them I volunteer with kids. I teach a class. I could say all of that. But he says, we're not allowed to tell people we give because they'll say you're proud. But nobody says you're proud when you go, you know, I work with the kids or I work over here. I help Boca Helping Hands or I'm in the clothing ministry. Nobody says you're proud. But as soon as we attach a value to it, money, we go, oh, that person's proud because they told me they give. And he's saying, I'm trying to learn how to give in humility and tell other people how to give. And he goes, it's very hard. You see, when you do what God tells you to do, that's humility. And as I said many, many times, I kind of laugh about this. I come in here sometimes and play the piano. This is a great piano. It's a great instrument. I play it, but you know how many people are in the room when I play it? Zero. Because I'm in about third grade in my piano playing but it's good for me. I praise Jesus, I sing loud. You know why I'm not singing here or why I'm back with the guitar players when I sing? Because I sing like you, I don't sing like them. But I still have the gift of worship. I have the gift of praise. But if I were to go to Clay and I would say, hey Clay, thanks for playing today. I really was blessed by the way you played. And if Clay said, which he doesn't, but if he did, it was nothing. That's not humility. That's false humility. Actually, that's pride reversed because it is something. See, what you do when you do it in the spirit, it is something. You gotta admit that it's something, but stay humble about it. Because if not, if, you, if someone came up to me afterwards and said, oh, Pastor Bill, that was a great job, and I go, oh, it was nothing. Well, that's ridiculous. What I've done is I've shoved you down. And if I've shoved you down, I've, I've raised myself. Do you see that? And that's pride or that's arrogance. If Clay were to say, oh, it was nothing, I know what it takes to play like he plays and I can't do it. It is something. I see the work that you do and when I compliment someone, I go, hey, great job, good job. Thank you for doing that. It is something, so you have to say that it's something, but realize it's God that's given you the gifts to do it. And you should deflect the praise to God and not receive it totally unto yourself. Because can I tell you, everything you have is a gift, and so if you can use your gifts for other people, it's really because you've been given. We have been given so we can give, whatever that gift is. Do you see what it is? And then we can be humble. And we need to have humility. And so many people miss the humility thing by the false humility. But 
we need to encourage. We got young people in our lives, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your students that you work with, and they've got to know that God has gifted them, and what are we doing with that gift, or what are they doing with that gift? Now, number two, that's the easy one, and that was hard, gentleness. Walk in a manny manner worthy of the calling I have called you in humility and gentleness. Can I say that I think we've lost this one in the United States? The evangelical church has lost gentleness. By and large, we have lost it. I have been accused, in fact, I've, I've been accused that I'm not harsh enough on people. People, people have left our church because I don't speak against people. I have the opinion that people are the prize, not the problem. Satan, sin, the demons, they're the problem. People are the prize. And when I go point my finger at these people and those people, I can point my finger at the problems, but when I point my finger to the people, I have lost the gentleness. Let me give you an example. I know you won't agree with this, I'm okay with that, but we have lost it in this country. People want us to be mad. People come up and go, why aren't you mad? Why aren't you raging about what's going on? I go, I'm not a rager. I don't think I've been called to rage and to be bitter. I've been called by God to speak what God has said, and we are to do it in humility and gentleness. Last week, at, um, Elizabeth and I were having dinner with a group of people, and they were mostly her friends and her associates that she does some work with, and I was sitting there. I was basically the plus one of this group, and we were sitting there, and I was sitting next to a man I had met but didn't know, and, and the way the noise in the room was, he and I just started talking. He's about 10 years older than me, taller than me, big guy, handsome, you know, just, just a great guy, and I've heard him speak, just a, a good guy, and I said, I, I always ask people that are, grew up in the 60s, I said, where were you during Vietnam? Those of you who are younger don't know, but our country was in another kerfuffle, you know, 50 years ago over this whole Vietnam thing. Those of you who are older are shaking your heads. Everybody has an opinion on Vietnam from back then. I said, where were you during Vietnam? He said, I was drafted right away. I go, where did you serve? He goes, I didn't go to Vietnam. He said, I was a pacifist. Now, I've never met a pacifist. Our family always went to war. We believe in guns, all the rest, okay whatever. He was a pacifist. I thought, wow, tell me what a pacifist. He said, I went to the draft board and said, you can put me in jail. You can send me to Canada. I'll work in the kitchen, but I'm not going to shoot anybody. I'm a Christian and I'm not shooting anybody. You decide what you want to do. And they said, we have one job for you. He said, they said, we want you to be a spy, a spy. He was good with languages. He knew three languages. He grew up in a French colony, he knew French, he knew English, he knew a couple other languages. So they taught him Czech. And he lived on the border of Germany and Czechoslovakia during the Cold War, and his job was to go in and rescue people. Rescue people. And he was told, much like Mission Impossible, if you get caught, we will disavow you. And he said, I spent four years going behind enemy lines, rescuing people. I thought, isn't that what we are called to do? 
Aren't we called to go behind enemy lines and rescue people? Or we could sit and talk about how bad fascism is and how bad Soviet Union is and how bad this is, which is okay, but that doesn't do anything. We need to rescue people. And he told me the dozens and dozens of people he rescued out of, during the Cold War, the Eastern Bloc countries, you don't even know what that is, you younger ones, but it was real. And he rescued them, had to walk through the forest to get back to Bavaria, to get back to Western Germany. And I thought, this guy wasn't weak. He was gentle. Do you see the difference? I'll use another quick example, my wife, okay? I usually don't say anything about my wife except great things. You all go, how? She's such a gentle woman. Can I just tell you, she's the strongest person I know. She's amazing. Strength, but she's gentle. You see, that's what the Bible talks about, meekness, about gentleness. We need to be strong, no doubt about it. But it has to be couched with the biblical concept of gentleness. There has to be a sense that we care for the other people. Even when we disagree with the other people, we have to care for the other people. So if someone's across an aisle from you, someone's across a cultural divide from you, be against them on the concepts before them as people. Because they need Jesus just as much as I need Jesus. And just as much as you need Jesus. And that's where gentleness comes. So you have humility. Walk in a manner of your calling that you have been called in humility and gentleness. And then it's in patience. Patience. Okay, there's another one we don't do well with. Patience. John Christostom, who was a church father about 1,500 years ago, said this. That a patient person has a wide and big soul. I thought that was the best definition, a wide and big soul. You are patient. God is patient with us, and we are to be patient with other people. There's a patience that's needed here as we work with other people, especially now with the way that our country is going and the separation of there's kind of us and them and those people and us people, and it's, there's a lot of differences here. There's a lot of cultural divide here. And we need to use humility, use gentleness, and use patience. Why? Because the next three, because we are to act in love. What does it say there? It says bearing with one another in love. Bearing is holding the burdens. We are to hold the burdens of other people in love. We are to help other people in love. We are to uh, bring them to Christ because We love them, and loving costs something. I love you. That costs nothing. Oh, I love you guys. I love them. Doesn't mean a thing until you bear with them, and your bearing means to hold. I'm holding something about them. Do you realize everybody has burdens? The wealthy have burdens. The poor have burdens. The gays have burdens. The heterosexuals have burdens. We all have burdens. We are there to bear their burdens, and one of the best ways to bear somebody's burdens, especially if they're not local with you, you have friends elsewhere you're praying for, is to pray for people. You can bear with them in praying with them. Pray for people. 
Pray that God will open their heart, open their minds, open their souls to understanding who the God of the universe is and his son, Jesus Christ. Because without that, it's all for nothing, right? Then there's this whole unity of spirit thing. I appreciate our church in many, many ways and for many reasons. One is there's a unity here. There's a unity among our team, among our staff, among our elders, among our uh, people. There's a unity. This was not always so. This church was known for disunity. We're 72 or 73 years old now. For a lot of years, in those middle years, disunity. Our previous pastor, the gentleman who uh, preceded me, I was, we were in a meeting, well, before the meeting, the way our church was um, brought together, the groups, we had these large groups. So we had five large groups, these Bible studies, called them Sunday school back then. I don't know if anybody remembers Sunday school. We had Sunday school, and we had five large groups. I was a teacher of one of them. My dad taught, uh, others taught, and there were five groups. <clears throat> they each had about 100 people in them. So we had 500 people plus a couple of smaller groups, probably had 700 people in Sunday school. When you came to church on Sunday years ago, you come at nine, you leave at 12. <clears throat> Not 10.30 to 12, it was nine to 12. Anyway, one of the guys went rogue. And one of the teachers, one of the five, and he was so nasty and he was speaking against, but he had the power of 100 people behind him. That's a lot of people in a church this size. And so he just said anything, I'm not tithing, I don't like the elders, I don't like the pastor, I don't like the direction, I hate the music, I hate the sermons. And he's a Sunday school teacher. And the disunity just spread everywhere. This is 15 years ago. This wasn't that long ago, 15 years ago. So one day, we were having a, a meeting, a Saturday morning, a couple Saturday morning meetings on vision. Pastor's standing there, a couple hundred people across the street in there. And the guy stands up in the middle and says, I want to make a statement. I want to make a statement in front of 200 people. And the pastor said, it's not your turn, sit down. And he said, I'm not going to sit down. And he stayed standing. He said, I want to make a statement. He said, no, you're not, sit down. So it was the pastor against the guy right where you guys are sitting, right there. He stands up, and the pastor said, sit down. He said, nope, and he stood. So the pastor stood there. It seemed like an eternity. It may have been 10 minutes, 10 minutes of silence, 200 people in the room, the tension of that gentleman and the pastor not speaking. Finally, that man walked out. And the cloud on this church lifted. It was a cloud that lifted. The next day was Sunday. I walked into church. I wasn't the pastor. I just one of you walked into church. I said, this is a different place. You see, one person can bring disunity to a large group. You think, oh, me just making some noise over here means nothing. Let me tell you, you have influence. Be careful. There is the unity of the spirit we need to have. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to be the same. We can disagree, no problem, but there needs to be unity in that disagreement. You, can, you just can't have disunity. It's amazing. I, 
You know, I tell people when they come, when we do membership class, they come in, I go, oh, you're all happy. They tell me how they love this, they love that, they love their group, they love the children, they love me, they love Clay, they love everybody. And then I said, one day you're gonna leave. I don't know, you might, unless you move, you're gonna leave. Just leave with that same spirit. Leave with the same spirit you came. And I'm happy. If you wanna go to another church, I'm a happy camper. You gotta go where God calls you to go, but you gotta do it in unity. Those of you who have come from other churches and people come and go, I hate that other church, it's this and it's that, I go, you need some unity here. I'm okay with you leaving that church, but you're bringing, you just make sure you're okay as you come. Because if you're coming because of differences, theological or whatever, I'm fine with that, but if it's a disunity, get yourself healthy and then come. And then finally, the bond of peace, the sixth one. So we have humility, we have patience, we have gentleness, we have love, we have unity of the spirit, and we have the bond of peace. Ultimately, God has called us to be peacemakers. That goes hand in hand with the unity. He's called us to be peacemakers. If you can do anything, if you see issues, be a peacemaker. Work and helping make peace. Why, why? The because is the next verses, this is so good. Verse four, he goes back to theology a little bit and he gives a confession of our faith. Remember I've talked in the past what confession is. Confession has a negative side, forgive me my sins, confess your sins. It has a positive side and the positive side of confession is to share what you believe. We confess, and what is the confession? It's a three-part confession here. The first part has three parts to it. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. So the first part of this is there's one body, one spirit, and one hope. This is such a beautiful thing to understand. One body. We are a church, big C, not Boca Raton Community Church. We are one body. We lose this so many times because we have differences. Part of what Elizabeth and I did the first week, we were in a part of the world that had a lot of churches in it, a lot of cathedrals, a lot of old churches, a lot of churches that had been um, destroyed by war previously and rebuilt. And we went from church to church. Now, most of them, I would go and worship on a regular basis. They have theologically a little different and practice was a little different, but it was a Sunday and we're in a church. And so the service was going on, it was in German. And I thought, let's stay for the service. And the pipe organ starts. I love pipe organs. I don't know if I'd go to a church with a pipe organ, but I love the pipe organ and this and that's going on. And then all of a sudden they sing a song we're familiar with in German. Elizabeth and I are singing in English. It was the most amazing thing. We're singing there, us in English, they in German, and having a worshipful time together. Believers with believers that have nothing else in common. Different, we live on different continents, different hemispheres, and yet we have, we are one body. God has called us to be one body. He's called us to come together. And this is very difficult because theologically people are moving to the fringes. And we have to be careful. We gotta bring people back. 
Let them know what's important. And that is key, but we are one body. And then he says, we're one spirit. And one, we aren't one spirit. There is one spirit. It's a capital S. There is one spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and he's been with us ever since. Early in the book of Ephesians, I said he was given to us as a deposit to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming again. We have the Spirit of God. There is one Spirit. And the problem happens, and I see this a lot of times, you go, well, I have the Spirit, and this is what we do, and someone over here says, well, we have the Spirit, and this is what we do, and it's like nowhere. Just remember, it's one Spirit. Now, there's expressions. It's interesting. You know, you got the Pentecostals. You got the high Anglicans. You got everybody in between. We're somewhere in between. And realize there are differences. But as long as people believe in the Bible, believe in the Word of God, believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, believe in the future coming of Jesus Christ, I don't care if you celebrate with candles or drums, whatever you want to do. And it's interesting, some people go, your church is too loud. Okay, whatever. Um, We like to celebrate in this church. Some churches like contemplative services, which is right, coming into church quietly, coming into church loudly. Both are right. Which do you prefer? Do you like standing and singing and doing the things we do, or do you like quiet contemplation? It's interesting, when we go away, a lot of times we go to churches that are quiet and contemplative because we never go there when we're here. So it's good sometimes to check what other people do, but please understand, it's If they're worshiping the Lord, that's what's important. Because we have one hope. There is one hope. There is not multiple hopes. Our hope is not in our money. Our hope is not in our country. Our hope, you you name whatever you want to name. Our hope is in who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's who our hope is. Then he goes on and he gives the second triad, which is really cool. He goes, then there's one Lord one faith, one baptism. This is important to know. When Paul speaks the word Lord, almost 100% of the time in his writings, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. A lot of times he says Lord and Savior. Sometimes he says the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ Jesus. It's the Lord. So in the first triad, we have the Spirit. In the second triad, we have the Lord Jesus Christ with one faith, The faith here he's talking about is not personal faith, which is important. He's talking about the faith. We have the faith, and that's so important that we have the faith. And it's important to understand that we have faith, but there is the faith. And then he goes into one baptism, and this is the confusing thing. What does one baptism mean? Especially since we all baptize differently. Our church, we bring you down into the water so you can't breathe and then we bring you back up. The reason we do that, by the way, I share this every time we're out at the beach or at the pool or wherever we're baptizing, is I believe baptism is a representation of death unto life. That the water represents death, sin, your past life. You represent yourself, and the person baptizing you is you'd fallen into death, And it's the person representing God, he's not God, it's not God at all, but it's a representation, is pulling you out from death unto life. That to me is baptism. 
That's what I, I grew up with it that way. I believe in that. But some of you grew up with baptism was doing the cross with oil. Baptism was being sprinkled. Baptism was being poured. Baptism was a different way. And you know what? I'm not going to say I'm right and you're wrong. But what I'm going to say is there's one baptism, and that is the baptism into Jesus Christ. And at this church, we immerse. At a lot of my friends' churches, they do it another way. You know what? They're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. And one of us is going to find out who was right after the fact. (laughs) But there's one baptism, and it's the baptism in Jesus Christ. If you do the baptism into Gandhi, it's the wrong baptism. If you do the baptism into Muhammad, and I have a lot of Muslim friends, it's the wrong baptism. If you baptize yourself, if, if you just baptize yourself and go, I'm going to bring myself back to life, it is the wrong baptism. There is one baptism here. Speaking of Gandhi, I left this out. Gandhi was once asked, why is Christianity not doing well in India? And he said, because of the Christians. He said, if the Christians practiced what Christianity says they should be practicing, it would catch like wildfire. Isn't that interesting? We have been called to do something because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then finally, in this triad, and this triad has itself in verse six, he goes, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is a Trinitarian statement. God the Spirit, God Jesus Christ, God the Father. We are Trinitarians. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And all are one and play a role in all of our lives. And then in verse 7, I'm just going to start this. This is where we're going to start next week. It says, But grace was given to each of you, or each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, grace in chapter 2, which uh, one of the guys preached on a couple of weeks ago, was, for by grace you are saved through faith. There is a saving grace that God gives us. He saves us through his grace. This is grace he gives us with the gifts that he gives us. So there is saving grace and there are gift graces, or grace gifts, I should say. The the plural is on the gifts, not on the grace. God gives us grace. So you have been given grace to become a believer. That's that whole rope illustration. And you have been given grace to use what God has gifted you in to help other people. And that's where the next, um, when we go starting in verse uh, 11 and 12 next week, will tell us about that. We call them spiritual gifts and other things, but it's an amazing thing. Now look at verse eight, because this is a little confusing, but it really ties this passage together. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he held a host of captives and he gave gifts to men or to people. That's what I just said. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, who, and he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So you have a picture of Christ descending, ascending, descending, ascending. 
Well, what on earth is that? I used to think, and I still kind of think this way, but I don't know that it's totally true. The Apostles' Creed says that Christ descended into hell. I don't know that this says that. It says he descended into earth. Now, some of us believe he descended into hell and took captivity captive, but the reality is he descended. He left heaven, descended to earth, went back to heaven, is going to descend again and go back. It's a beautiful picture of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You see, he descended, ascended. He ascended in uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2. He's going to descend again with the second coming of him, second coming of Christ, and then he's going to ascend again. And I know we have disagreement on exactly when this is going to occur and exactly the particulars or how it is going to occur. But the blessed hope that we have is that Jesus Christ is coming back for his people again. And if you believe that, all of this makes sense. And if you don't believe that, none of this makes sense. None of this is nothing more than an ethical system. Be humble, be kind, be gentle, be patient, love one another. Those are all good ethical statements, but there's a purpose behind the ethics, and that is we're living a life to follow Jesus Christ because it's a walk towards him. Now, wherever you are in the walk, and here's the, the thing we need to understand as we close, and this was hard for me becoming a pastor, Many of you didn't, weren't here when I started, but I started in the pew. I didn't come from another church and kind of laterally came from one platform to another. Pl I started in the pew. I grew up in this church. I sat where you sit. And I came up here. So it's hard to, you go, well, you're not the senior, you're a senior pastor, but are you better than us? Are you worse than us? No, I'm just one of you. So the hard part was I realized that there were people in the pew that were farther along in their walk than, in Jesus than I am. You see that? Some pastors think they have to be the closest to Christ, and the rest of you come follow behind me. Like this? I'm the type that says there are people all along this path, and I'm probably a little further along than most, but there are people in this room that are further along than me. I am shouting ahead encouragement to them. I'm shouting behind encouragement to you. Does that make sense? Because none of us are perfect. If you find the perfect church, you find the perfect person, don't join it. <laughs> because it will no longer be perfect. Because you're there. Right? Here's the thing, too. Somebody taught me this years ago. Only follow a leader who has a limp. You need somebody who's been through the fire. I got to tell you, I'm not over there yet, but I've been through the fire. And I'm with you. And some of you are going through the fire, and I know exactly what it feels like because I've been through the fire. Maybe different circumstances, different issues, different this, different that, but we are together working to draw closer to Christ, right? To this cross back here, to Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. Christ descended and died on the cross, and then he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And he said, I'm coming back, 
But before I come back, I'm going to send you two things. I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm going to send you the church. We have the church. The church is a gift from God, from Christ. And the Spirit is a gift from Christ until he comes back where he takes the church back with him. It's an amazing picture. It's a big scene. We're going to stop there. And we'll finish this part next week because we're going to talk about how do we play out humility, patience, gentleness. How do you play that out? What does it mean to do this? And we're going to talk about playing that out. What does it really mean? And we'll do that next week.